You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Google takes down YouTube accounts spreading disinformation. Crypto mining gear was seized at a Ukrainian nuclear plant. CISA outlines its strategic vision. Spyware makes it into the Google Play Store twice. And a man gets life in prison for installing hidden cameras. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Tamika Smith sitting in for Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Daily Podcast for Friday, August 23rd, 2019. Google has joined Facebook and Twitter in taking down social media accounts, probably operated by Chinese government sock puppets. Mountain View blogged yesterday that it closed 210 YouTube accounts it found spreading disinformation about the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. Google did not explicitly attribute the activity to the Chinese government, but it did note that the activity was similar to the campaigns flagged by Twitter and Facebook. The videos were posted in what appeared to be a coordinated manner. Google also observed behavior it associates with inauthenticity, notably the use of VPNs. The SBU, Ukraine Security Service, has found and confiscated crypto mining gear installed at a South Ukrainian nuclear power plant. The rig the SBU took included six Radeon GPU video cards, a motherboard, power supplies and extension cords, a USB and hard drive, and cooling units. They also raided offices at the National Guard Unit 3044, which is located at the nuclear facility. That search turned up 16 video cards, a system unit with the inventory number of the military unit, seven hard drives, two solid-state drives, a USB flash drive, and a router. The Ukrainian online news service Internet UA said none of these hardware devices should have been on the premises in the first place. The Ukrainian English-language news service Unium observed that one of the problems at the power plant was that the computers exploited were connected to the Internet. Cointelegraph, which covered the raids, noted the similarities to the case of the nuclear engineers Russian authorities arrested in February of 2018 for pulling Bitcoin out of the Russian Federal Nuclear Center. The nuclear power and research sector deploys a lot of computational power, and supercomputers attract cryptojackers. An unknown number of people are under police investigation. On Thursday, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency published a document outlining the agency's strategic vision, and CISA Director Chris Krebs summarized the strategy in a speech at Auburn University. He said its agency's overarching job is to act as the nation's risk advisor, 
helping public and private sector entities form strategies to defend themselves against cyber attacks. CISA will focus on five specific operational priorities. Number one is China, which Krebs calls, quote, the most pressing long-term strategic risk to the United States, particularly as it relates to the supply chain. Second is election security. Third, soft target security or protecting crowded places. Number four is federal cybersecurity, leading the government in adapting to the speed of change. Finally, the agency will work to reduce the risk to industrial control systems. Twelve large telcos and the attorneys general of all 50 U.S. states and the District of Columbia have agreed to give consumers some relief from robocalls. The Wall Street Journal reports that AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, Sprint, and CenturyLink are among the companies that have committed to working with the AGs to, quote, provide customers with free call blocking technology, investigate and trace illegal calls, and confirm the identity of their commercial customers as a part of the cooperation with law enforcement, end quote. Many robocalls are not illegal per se, but an awful lot of them run afoul of fraud and consumer protection laws. ESET uncovered a spyware app in the Google Play Store. The app called Radio Baluch, or RB Music, was built on the open-source remote-access Trojan Amit and doubled as a fully-functioning internet radio app for Baluchi Music. It can send text messages from an infected phone and steal contacts and files. It also has a meaningless login page, presumably to steal reused credentials. The malicious app made it through Google's vetting process twice. ESET first reported the app to Google on July 2nd, and it was removed within a day. Eleven days later, the same app reappeared in the Play Store with the same branding and functionalities. Google again responded quickly after ESET brought it to their attention, but the researchers say the company should improve its vetting capabilities. They note that, quote, as the malicious functionality in our myth is not hidden, protected, or obfuscated, it is trivial to identify the Radio Baluch app and other derivatives as malicious, end quote. Ryan Alden, a former employee of a security company in Oklahoma, was convicted of installing what reports call a staggering number of cameras in the houses he worked on. Many of them were aimed at children's rooms, and the story is staggeringly creepy. KFOR News reports that the judge, who expressed her regret that the law did not offer mutilation as one of the sentencing options, gave Mr. Alden life in prison, which Mr. Alden admitted might be fair enough. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. 
Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at University of Bristol. Awais, it's great to have you back. We wanted to talk today about uh, making decisions when it comes to cybersecurity, specifically based on risk. Uh, What can you share with us today? Understanding cybersecurity risks is a complicated matter because, you know, if we all had a crystal ball, then life would be simpler. And the fact of the matter is that everything we do on a daily basis, we make risk decisions. When you decide to procure that product or service, you make a risk decision. When you decide to even send an attachment with your email, you make an implicit risk decision. But also when you're deciding at a more senior level within an organization about the budgets that you allocate to your security, you make a risk decision. And we have been looking sort of through a sort of a large uh, piece of work at understanding as to how different uh, demographics within organizations actually understand risk and to what extent do they actually um, uh, respond to particular types of risks in particular ways. Um, Hmm. uh, How do people's perceptions of risks align with reality? So it's quite interesting that people often tend to understand the risks that are sort of much more in the spotlight. So so we have designed a game that is now being used quite widely across the UK and even internationally to educate people about cybersecurity. And as part of that, we also collect quite a lot of data. And it's quite interesting to see that people always, of course, you know, invest in the basics. So, you know, they would go for things like antiviruses and firewalls, but there is also always this tendency of an over-reliance at times on technology. There is often this view that if we buy the latest security events and information management system or the latest intrusion detection system, that will solve all the problems. And of course, risk is much more nuanced uh, in that sense, because an organization will have a lot of different security needs and a lot of different controls would need to be put in place from, you know, security awareness raising to some of the very basic things to also intrusion detection systems and those kind of environments, encryption of your data and things like that. And we find that it's not always that uh, people consider all those risks upfront. How much do regulatory requirements come into play? People are are able to you know, approach things from a sort of a checkbox point of view that we've we've taken care of this, we've met this requirement, so we're good here, right? That's the word checkbox is really quite interesting there. So it depends how do you want to implement a regulatory requirement. And if you think about it as checkbox, then you can do things that will allow you to meet that checkbox. But does that actually improve the state of security of your organization is an entirely different matter. And uh, my favorite example on that would be the, the cookie rule in the EU, where, you know, we are supposed to all know that now a website wants to place a cookie on our machine as you, as you go and visit the website. And this was sort of a big deal that was required. But all that has mattered is that now every website gets you to say, well, I'm going to put a cookie on your machine and you have to click OK. 
and that's it. It actually makes no difference. Cookies are still, right. uh, you know, in use, but they are now compliant with that rule. So at least we know, right? Yeah, yeah but, uh, <laughs> you know, and if you ask a lot of users, they wouldn't even know what a cookie is, right? So, right. so you get your compliance, but you don't actually change the state of anything And, and yeah. uh, in that sense. So I think regulation has a big role to play. But the key question is, does regulation lead to an active change in the approach from organizations and how do they deal with with security uh, and 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 the risks that come from the various types of threats that they face. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I, I wonder, you know, you have folks who are afraid of flying, for example, but then uh, are perfectly fine getting in a car when, you know, we know statistically they're more likely to have some sort of an accident in the car than they are in an airplane. And are there similar uh, misalignments with perceived risks with some of the work that you're doing? Yes. So, I mean, risk perceptions, of course, do vary. And in many cases, people perceive certain risks to be more or less relevant. The most interesting thing that we have seen is that very often, actually, security experts don't necessarily do any better than non-experts in that sense. And in some cases, Mm. non-experts can have a much better understanding of the organizational context because of their day-to-day jobs compared to uh, security experts who may not always be aware of the implicit working practices that may be going on within within an organization. The key message that I've taken away is that actually employees are a big resource. And if they can help understand what are the practices that go on in organizations and where the risks actually arise, we can come up with much better ways to protect organizations. But of course, mining that information in a large organization with a large number of employees is in itself a big challenge. Professor Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And now it's our pleasure to introduce our guest, Kathy Hall from CELA, who's here to discuss privilege access management. For the longest time, security and especially privilege access management was in the purview of the infrastructure team. There was a lot of administrators that needed to elevate their access in order to maintain and, and operate these underlying systems that, that kind of are essential to the enterprise. And the old way of doing this was to grant everybody the default administrator access on these systems. So root for Unix or local administrator or domain administrator for Windows boxes. And and whenever they needed to run anything with privilege, they would use these accounts. And all of the governance and all of the security and all of the oversight was was run by those same administrative teams. Uh, What we've noticed more recently is that these privilege accounts are kind of the, the crown jewels of the for the for the attackers that are trying to get into these systems because that really gives them unfettered access within an enterprise or within the network. So now the security teams as 
uh, security within an organization has started to mature. I think I heard you talking about how CISOs are being given that seat at the table now that, that all the other C-suites have been granted and they mm. have a stronger view into these things. They're realizing that this is their biggest problem is that while you have attackers attacking the network and attacking individual users, what they're really trying to do is get to these privileged accounts and, and important data or destroy systems or, or kind of wreak havoc. And the only way they can do that is to have these administrator accounts, these root accounts, these domain accounts. And so their main purpose is to get to those. So we want to make sure that we're providing a little more oversight, a little more governance and, and view to the security part of the organization to allow them to determine whether or not that access should be used in that particular instance. And so what does the modern implementation of that look like? There are a number of pillars. I think it started with the password vaults. What we see a lot of times in, in our you know, personal uses, the last passes, the one passwords, our own personal password vaults, we started to implement those for administrative users. So at least we were ensuring that the passwords that they were using were incredibly strong, can be rotated at a regular cadence, and that we had visibility into who was using those passwords. But as this area has matured, more and more features have come out. There's session monitoring and session isolation where the user doesn't even see the password. They Originally, you would have to check it out or type it in. Um, now, these PAM tools can provide isolated sessions to the user once they've been authorized to do so. And, and then the password can then be rotated immediately uh, and they never see it. And uh, the next user that needs to use that same administrative account would be using a completely separate password. And therefore, it's very easy to tell who is doing what within the organization um, with hmm. their privilege access. I wonder too, I mean, is there is there anything to this notion that there there should no longer be you know, a, a, an all-powerful admin account that's just sitting there at all times. In other words, are we in an era where all access should be provisioned as needed on the fly and that it be, that it time out, that it be temporary for a certain amount of time? Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you're getting into an area where I think these vendors are starting to get to, which is what they call just-in-time provisioning. When the user, when the administrator needs to elevate their access, they're granted that elevation only for particular transaction for a limited period of time. These tools can then go and take those privileges away from that account after it's met its use. These are features that these tools are starting to put out there. I, th I think there's some limited scope for what they can do for now, but it's definitely an area that people are thinking through and looking for ways to enable that type of provisioning. Where do you suppose we're headed? When, when you look ahead, what's the future for this? What this does is it gives a lot more insight into activity and transactions uh, so that we can start to move away from just even a least privilege model, which is where we, we give everybody all of the access they need in perpetuity to do their job because that's where these systems are. And we move more to the zero trust model and the just-in-time provisioning that you were talking about, which is for a particular transaction, for a particular time, given all this other context that we have. So these systems right now don't have visibility into context like, is there a service ticket open or is there a 
vulnerability that we can pull in from this other system, but they're looking into that. So every privileged transaction then can be validated and verified before it's even allowed to run. I think that that is where these vendors are looking to go. I think that's where we are all trying to help our organizations think, our, our client organizations think about. And I really think that that's, a, that's an important feature of a PAM program. It takes work to get there. It takes the ability to pull that context in. It takes a, a robust privilege access management tool. It takes a robust privilege access management program run by your organization that has, of course, buy-in from your stakeholders, but then buy-in from your end users. And really kind of watching that market to see when these vendors start to put out more interesting capabilities like the just-in-time provisioning or some of these really interesting analytics tools that they're starting to put out, which allow you to determine if a user's behavior is out of the norm or out of expectation or out of their peer group and limit that access at that particular time. That's Kathy Hall from CELA. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.